Welcome back to another episode of Lace of Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, E.K. Wimmer. I am Mariah Rose. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing great. Excited to talk about this episode today. Uh-huh. Uh, a little different, but not too different. It's still 80s related, but kind of branching out a little... We haven't done another event or history of episode in a while, so... It's time. It's time, folks. Buckle in. It's not going to be too intense, and if you are unfamiliar with art history, don't get scared. Stay here. We'll guide you along. We'll take your hand, and we got the flashlights, and we're going to show you the way. This is also a great learning opportunity. If you are a fan of art history... This will be a nice little break from cheesy movies. Also, if you aren't familiar with, you know, the history of art, doesn't matter. Save five tidbits from this, you know, podcast and bring it out at the next party when we're allowed to have parties again. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. And you'll sound like a genius. It's true. Uh, Because obviously we do. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, full disclosure, we we did go to grad school for art history, so we are finding an excuse to use our degrees since we have no other reason for them. No. Okay, well, before we get into this week's episode, let's talk about some thrifting. What do you got? Oh, um, well... I were exploring online schooling, so I didn't have much time to get out and do things because I was here assisting with the children as they figured out online schooling. And when I finally did get to go out into the world and I crawled out of the cave, I went to the nearest thrift store and I walked in in kind of a panic because it was this morning. <laughs> and <laughs> like one of those 11th hour. Yes. I like how you take it like this uh, segment of our podcast. You like have to do it or else. Well, I'm like, okay, I could do this or I could go back to the desert. So it's true. So rather than finding stuff in the desert, I, I like your desert finds for the record. Thank you. Okay. Um, But I walked in and truly I was like crazy eyed. I had my mask on and just my eyes were shifting as I navigated the store and I saw a ceramic armadillo. How big was it? It was huge. It was bigger than two out of three of our dogs. It was so big. And I picked it up and I carried it around and it was $14.99, which Uh, seemed pricey. And also I was like, ugh. I don't know. I don't need an armadillo. And I set it down and I was like, it's fine. Because we had talked about going out later in the day. And I was like, it's fine. I'll find something later. Don't buy the armadillo. And I left and I felt sad about it. I felt sad for the armadillo and I felt sad for myself. And we actually came back to the same place later because you hadn't gone there. And I was like, I'm going to get it. I just I have to get this armadillo. And it was gone. Oh, man. You know, if you would have gotten it, we could have like spray painted it hot pink and put it in the backyard. Shut up. Oh, that's a real, real fail on your part. I know it was. I live with regret. And instead, today was 102. We drove by a little store that had a sign right out front before we went to this thrift store. It was 102 degrees. And I bought a sweater instead of a ceramic armadillo. Yeah, well, you win some, you lose some. This is a big lose. I mean, the sweater's cool, but still, I can't no, wear it hot. forever. <laughs> what did you find? I had a great week. Sorry to burst your bubble there. Rude. Well, I've been having just crap weeks over and over, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to drive like into the heart of downtown and just hit up everything possible, because mm-hmm. we do live a bit away from from the city, so... It's it's an effort to get there, 
Mm-hmm. And I've just been coming up short otherwise. And I was like, you know what? I'm sick of wasting my time. If I'm going to go there, I'm going to just hit up every like indoor flea market and everything else I can find. I'll find something. Do and it. I actually like came up with a few cool things. And I probably won't go back now for like a month or two because yeah, they're the not going to So it'll be local thrifting from here on out. But um, one sad story was... I did find a box of awesome 80s metal cassettes, which is mainly all I want to collect for cassettes. Only they were missing all of the actual tapes. They were just the covers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was bummed out. But I did find a few, and they were good ones. One was Racer X. I I don't have any of their stuff on cassette. And then a Faith No More album, Angel Dust, which was the tour I saw them for when I was a kid. Because my sister was awesome and took me to go see... Faith No More, Metallica, and Guns N' Roses. That's a weird mix. <laughs> it was a weird it mix. It was one show? Yeah, Faith No More opened, and then Metallica oh, and Guns okay. N' Roses were doing this like massive double header, like the show of the decade. That's weird. Oh, it was really cool, though, because um, this was the last tour Guns N' Roses ever did before they broke up, and Axl Rose was at the peak of his like insanity. No. Well, he was at the beginning. At the time, this was the peak before they, they snapped. <laughs> And the show ended with Metallica came out and did a great job, but um, yeah, it was the Use Your Illusion tour, and Axel got so upset with the crowd that he cussed at everybody. He had a wireless mic. Yes, he cussed at everybody, and then he flipped us off, threw the mic into the crowd, and stormed off. But the sound engineer guys did not uh, turn off the wireless mic. <laughs> And so he threw it into a crowd of drunk metalheads. I'm not making this up. And over the PA, as we were all exiting, you could hear drunk guys like farting and burping like Beavis and Butthead into the microphone. And it was yes. seriously one of the greatest concert experiences I've ever had. So yeah, there you go. That's good. Anyway, I found a, a Faith No More album. That's what that was about. So good week. I found a ton of stuff. But that's Those are the two that really good stood out for you. For me. Yeah. Okay, well, this week we are talking about uh, kind of something a little interesting, similar in a way to our Weird Al episode, where we're kind of talking about somebody's life over the course of the 80s. Only the difference is that we're talking about Andy Warhol, mm-hmm. who is mainly more famous for his you know, development of pop art in the 60s. Mm-hmm. He you know, was definitely successful in the 70s, but he did have a resurgence at the end of his life in the 80s. Um, kind of that was cut very short, but it's often overlooked in the world of art. I mean, not when you're an art historian, but when you're just a general like person thinking about yeah. pop art. And Well, he's and kind Warhol. of a mysterious figure anyway. He is. We are going to be focusing in on the final years of Andy Warhol, which is 80 to 87. He almost, almost made it to the end, but not like, quite. Very close. But he got a good chunk of it. And he, he packed a lot in there for the... The seven years he was there. Yes. But, you know, before we get started, and this is just like a personal taste, I was wondering, do you, are you a fan of Andy Warhol? I am a fan of Andy Warhol's art. I don't know if I'm a fan of Andy Warhol, although I think I kind of am. You know, he was a questionable character and did some weird stuff, but I'm a fan of... Are we all? Yeah, exactly. But I, and maybe it's just because I see this, you know, I, I relate to this, is that I believe that art is in all forms you shouldn't limit yourself to just being a painter or a musician or a filmmaker like or writer if you have an idea find the medium that best suits you but don't be intimidated to say well i don't know how to write so i can't write like Mm -hmm. just write 
And what I like about Warhol is that he did anything and everything that came to mind. You know, he made movies. Yes. He managed bands because he loved music. Uh, He obviously was a fine artist. He was a writer. So I just, I, that's what I like about Warhol is that Mm -hmm. he was all in and tried everything. I also like that he kind of poked fun at the establishment and consumerism and it kind of reminds me a lot of one of my actual favorite artists, Marcel Duchamp, who was a Dadaist mm-hmm. and, and then later quasi-surrealist. But I think that he borrowed a lot from him and um, and from other artists. But yeah, I would say on a whole, I do think that uh, his contributions to art are incredibly important. So oh, yeah. I would be a fan. Undoubtedly. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, um, I would say he is interesting in that He's almost my complete opposite. I'm I'm a chronic oversharer. I'm like, oh, you know, like, tell me about your surgery you had. Guess what? I had a surgery in, you know, 1985. Let me tell you all the details about that. Let me tell you about my emotional status. He, on the other hand, is an undersharer. Even now, like, as you, as we were researching him, and I've actually done research on him in the past, he's very mysterious for somebody who is so interested in uh, fame and pop culture and all of that. You, even now, little is known about his interior world. It's so fascinating. So I think more than his art, which is significant, I'm interested in his interior world and it's, I'm going to say it's like an eternal mystery. Nobody knows. Do you believe in feelings and emotions? Well, no, I don't, but uh, I have them. I wish I I didn't. But you'd like to get rid of them altogether, would you? It would be a good idea, yeah. Yeah, He never presented his true self, which I really appreciated. It was like a character all the time. But also, was it? That's the ultimate question. Yeah, that's a good... Uh, question, and we'll talk about that because um, in the late '60s there was a pretty, you know, extreme event that happened in his life, mm-hmm. and he does have a quote that um, that he kind of went on record talking about that event, which gives a slight indication that he was aware of his of his situation and what he was doing. But I don't know. There's times when I'm like, is this who he truly was, or was this a character? It's kind of like David Lynch, like when. People interview Lynch. He never gives them what they want. He yeah. always is kind of just sidesteps them with a little bit of sarcasm and mm-hmm. light Absolutely. joking. And every Warhol interview is just riddled with like just trailing people. Misdirecting. Yeah, yes. misdirecting for sure. So he doesn't have to actually um, answer truthfully. Yeah. And I think that that's really interesting. And there's something to be said about that. It's also kind of sad. Mm-hmm. I, I I feel like either there's an emptiness in him or a sadness, and I don't know. Well, yeah, we never will. But okay. Andy Warhol, well, we'll spend a little bit of time on his history, his yeah, backstory. Yeah, you gotta lead, us, lead yeah. us in. I mean, but we're not going to spend a lot of time because this is an 80s podcast, and we really want to get that, to that side. Mm-hmm. But let's start with the basics. Okay. For those of you that don't know, Andy Warhol, he was actually born Andrew Warhola. He dropped the A later. Um, that's because his parents were uh, Slovakian 
immigrants, first generation. They came over. He was born August 6th, 1928 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And his dad was a coal miner and he died pretty uh, early from an accident. He died when Andy was 13. Oh, yeah. Wow. I didn't know it was that early. Yeah. And actually, their family had quite a bit of tragedy. They, before they emigrated, they um, had another child, an older sibling, who died. Oh, didn't. Yeah, didn't didn't even make it to the U.S. Well, that's, um, that was kind of his upbringing. He did have a couple other siblings, though. But, you know, by the third grade, um, he had something happen to him that would kind of... It's a strange thing. It's a very strange thing, but it would also um, become part of his identity for the rest of his life. In third grade, he had something called uh, Sydenham's chorea, which is a, an illness that they think is linked to... Um, I think it's scarlet fever. Mm -hmm. And it is characterized by involuntary jerking of the face, hands, feet. So it's bizarre. And it happens. Also, it impacts the skin. Yeah, it changes the pigment of your skin, Mm -hmm. which gave him that really pale complexion. Yes. Well, actually, it's really blotchy. So what he did is he put on this cake makeup later in life. That's why he's super, super pale. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. But if you see photos of him, like, out late at Studio 54, his nose is really red. Yeah. And also, it's kind of bulbous. And I think that's something that happened in addition to this uh, Sydenham's Korea, which is also called uh, St. Vitus's Dance. Dude, that's cool. That sounds like a goth band. Do you know why it's called St. Vitus's Dance? No. So it's an old disease or an old ailment. And it was said that people who were afflicted with it, if they went in, in front of a statue of St. Vitus, that it could uh, cure them. Really? Yeah. Do you think that's a goth band from the 80s? It's got to be. If it's not, uh, you guys Start back it. off. I'm taking it. Yeah, Start that's going to be my next side project. Goth that's band names totally are cool all name. taken. All right. Well, anyway. Yeah, so that happened and that would be something that would really stick with him for the rest of his yes, life. Yes, absolutely. Uh, he graduated in 1945 from high school and then he attended college. He actually went to Carnegie Mellon. Well, that's what it's called now. It wasn't then, yeah. but it's Carnegie Mellon for commercial art. And he got his BA in 1949 and then immediately did what... A lot of crazy people do and moved to the city and he went to New York City. And it worked out well for him. It worked out really (laughs) well. I mean, he landed a job right away. I mean, by the late 40s, early 50s, he was already making a name for himself for commercial art because Mm -hmm. he was doing fashion and stuff like that, uh, layout designs and stuff. And um, yeah, he got... He got attention quick. Well, it was in the 1940s. He drew a pair of shoes. Yeah, it was really 49. It was the very end. Very simple, stylized, just like confident line work, but it was for Glamour magazine. So that was a huge step up to have something go at that young of an age into publication. And he just built on that success. And that's all he did. And he that that line work actually got compared to another artist that I know you're a big fan of, Toulouse-Lautrec. Um, because yes. people had said, like, not since Toulouse-Lautrec had, had an artist been so confident with the line work, which... I can tell you right now, uh, Picasso was sitting there bitching and moaning about that comment because, Ugh. of course, he was the, the biggest and the best. But, um, yeah, he, he like, just made it right away. I mean, he wasn't, like, rolling in the dough yet, but he was definitely getting attention because by the 50s, by the late 50s, he for was sure, set. he was already showing in galleries. Like, people had seen his commercial work and mm-hmm. were like, do you want to start showing in galleries? So he, he kind of got a 
just got right in there. And, and if it. he had continued that course, it would have been like considered a successful life. But yeah. that wasn't enough for him. No, he wanted bigger and better. And so by the 60s, though, he like he's really he's already jumping in pretty strong. And yes. 62 is the year that I would focus in on if we were going to right away is because that was his first show out west. He had a big show in oh, L.A. Mm-hmm. And then came back and had a solo show in New York. Mm-hmm. And from there, the, that show is the one where he was showing the Coke bottles. Campbell's and, Soup. The Campbell's Soup, the Maryland's. Mm-hmm. And that like put him big time on the map. And from there, there's like no one going, no going back. Yeah. And by the end, like to put this into context, most artists who are amazing never reach this level of success but he's just getting started and by the end of 1962 he is exhibiting at the museum of modern art in new york uh and a symposium on pop art (laughs) yeah so he just like skyrocketed yeah he rose quick so the 60s we're gonna we're gonna gloss over because they're so well known and this is an 80s podcast but you know we'll we'll talk we'll hit on a couple little things but if you guys want to know more you know, you can Please find anything and everything. It. But the 60s is really, for Warhol, the absolutely the golden most, era. yeah, the golden era for him. It hurts to kind of skip past I know, it. it is. We will talk briefly. Like, we have to talk about the factory, which was his studio that he created. It was actually a couple different locations. Yes. But he created this factory. He had all these fringe kind of outsider artists and musicians come and they would just kind of circle around him like he well, orbit around him what was so special about the factory is that there could be you know a homeless person who's written their own manifesto we'll get to yeah. it to you know mick jagger yeah. all in the same place to like elizabeth taylor maybe some royalty a yeah, politician David bowie every bob dylan they were all bag there. Yeah. actors actresses thinkers of the time and transients and just random people that was kind of his thing was just taking all of these random ingredients tossing them in a bag and seeing what happens yeah and he had some really interesting people like nico one of our favorites you know this Mm -hmm. really eccentric musician and model edie sedgwick uh, candy darling like all these characters but i would say the the most famous from this time that he personally was like really close with because i mean dylan and well he created his own superstars yeah would be the velvet underground and the velvet underground he really kind of got heavy-handed in in 65 and then by Mm -hmm. 66 67 they were essentially his like house band for the factory and he started managing them and he's the one that worked out like record deals and stuff like that so Mm -hmm. i mean he had his hand in everything and actually i listened to a a little interview with lou reed talking about this time so this was super old lou reed oh cool like Like crazy old old. no no he was just like you know you know how old famous people get. But he was talking about how they were this weird band that Warhol believed in, but nobody else knew. And they were from the get go, not playing like normal gigs, but playing in museums and stuff. And Andy would set up, you know, his own video installation stuff in the mm-hmm. background. So that was playing with their music. And then um, also Lou Reed said none of his work was... Um, Round. It was all angular. And when you have to, you have to think about what was happening in the 60s. It was like lots of groovy prints and stuff. So these hard edges were very different. So Warhol was working in that sense. But 
What I thought was most fun about what Lou Reed shared around this time was that Andy, for all of his preparedness, he would just like ask some random dude to come up and like run the lights or play the projector. (laughs) He'd be like, hey, just will you push this button? That's not a surprise, actually. (laughs) So it's perfect. But I think it fully encapsulates everything that was happening from really carefully orchestrated to an element of chaos at all times. And I think that leads in nicely to probably, you know, the biggest event of the 60s in Andy's life would be that when you invite all these people in, chaos does ultimately happen because you can't keep track of who's Mm -hmm. coming, who's going, who's mentally stable, who's not. No. And uh, on June 3rd, 1968, we have uh, a pretty extreme event in Andy's life. It, it totally impacts every minute of the rest of his life. So there's a woman, her name is Valerie Solanus, and she was a just a kind of tertiary character. She'd been in one of his movies that he was making, but she had brought a script by for him to read. And he, I think he lost it. I think he probably thought crazy lady gave me a script whatever and he she lost or he lost it but she kept coming back and asking for it and she got really upset about it also i should say that she was uh a extremist feminist she'd written something called the scum manifesto Mm -hmm. the goal was to um eliminate men right well she was schizophrenic too like she was she was later diagnosed yes When she came back in search of her script, she shot both Andy and his critic curator friend, Mario Amaya. He was fine, uh, but Andy was critically injured. He survived. Yeah, she shot him in the back, right? Yeah, and he ended up having to wear a corset, a medical corset, for the rest of his life. (laughs) That sucks. And not to, not, like, on top of that, you have to consider the mental impact something like that has, and he would have bodyguards and stuff. Yeah, after that, he was like, not paranoid per se, but just like surrounding himself with this idea of um, anybody could harm him. Yeah, she just walked in. I think up until that point, it was all big party. Yeah. And he hadn't really considered that yet. And he does talk about that. Um, There was this quote, and I didn't write it down because I didn't really need to, but... Actually, I have the quote right here if you want to hear it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. Before I was shot, I always thought that I was more half there than all there. I always suspected that I was watching TV instead of living life. People sometimes say that the way things happen in movies is unreal, but actually it's the way things happen in life that's unreal. The movies make emotions look so strong and real, whereas when things really do happen to you, it's like watching television. You don't feel anything. Right when I was being shot and ever since, I knew that I was watching television. The channel switch, but it's all television. Okay, Andy. And honestly, that's the longest quote I've ever heard from Andy. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I think that's the longest quote I've ever heard, too. Well, anyway, so that was in 68. And yeah, yeah, his life was forever changed. And it, I don't think is a surprise that in the 70s, everything toned down like it, the kind of, he was still wild and out there, but it was not n- near the excess and craziness of the 60s. Yeah, so, he only went to Studio 54 a whole bunch. Yeah. He calmed it way down. Yeah, the 70s basically, to just kind of wrap that up, because the 60s and the 80s are his two big peaks. The 70s was more like 
he found a ton of rich patrons who wanted their portraits done and was doing a lot of portraits then. He was going to Studio 54 and hanging out with just like Mm -hmm. tons of celebrities and just kind of doing his art and getting by. And, um, you know, he was still very much at the forefront of art, but... It wasn't quite the extravagance of the factory days from the 60s. No, and actually it was around this time that I heard a a little interview with David Bowie talking about a conversation he'd had with Lou Reed about Andy Warhol. Is that too convoluted? But he said that Lou Reed told him Andy Warhol is like a wind-up doll that you wind up and then he does nothing. Well, I think the thing was not that he does nothing, because clearly he does a lot. But when you put him in a public space, he really isn't doing anything. It's he's so fascinating in that way. And so it is weird weird that people like gravitate towards him. But then when you see him talk, he's like he doesn't have this personality, but he does. He's like a vampire. Yeah. Like for reals. Everybody is so attracted. But he's like pasty and white and creepy and in black all the time and doesn't give any personal information (laughs) yeah maybe he sucks blood i don't know probably not yeah well the 70s so they kind of came and went with him just you know doing real steady work he also published a book called the philosophy of andy warhol in 75 so he wasn't doing nothing no no not at all it's just that he was very much just a working artist this point doing a lot of portraits, which was kind cashing of paying the in. bills. Yeah, yeah, just cashing in entirely. Well, before we leave the 70s, we've got one more kind of big thing that he does. And that's important to his story. To say the least. I don't know how involved he was, actually. I kind of wonder, like, you He's know... He's considered a founder. He is, but it already existed. And then it was kind of merged with some other schools. But he and a friend named Stuart Pivar in 1979 founded the New York Academy of Art. No big deal. No big deal. And he did leave a lot of money to it. So uh, that did happen. And oh, I, it happened. Yeah. I just I don't quite know the extent of his Who cares? It's his, his legacy. But there you go. If I you guys mean, didn't know. That's like Bill Gates. He just throws some money at things and his name is attached to it. And everybody's like, what a legacy. <laughs> right. Totally. Okay, guys. Well, that was uh, 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s Warhol. But we are ready to dive into the 80s Here and we are. Andy Warhol. So he starts off this decade by just basically reminding everybody gently how important he is. <laughs> he he co-authors a book, which I've read. It's called Popism, the Warhol 60s. Basically, what he did is he successfully wrote himself into history. I feel like he was already in history. Sealed the deal. He's okay. just like... I don't know, hitting the nail one more time to make sure it's flush. Okay. (laughs) So, I I mean, he's just kind of reestablishing himself, saying he's still there. He also develops something called Andy Warhol's TV. It's Andy Warhol's TV with supermodel Carol Alt, New York Ranger Ron Greshner, Senator Patrick Moynihan, English rock group Duran Duran, and photographer Horst. He talked with artists, musicians, designers, actors, whatever, about their work. In 80, he also had a big show that was pretty controversial, and I would say sets the tone for him in the 80s, too. He had a show at the Jewish Museum of Art Mm -hmm. called Jewish Geniuses, which were 10 portraits. And um, 
he was a Catholic, a hardcore Catholic. Yes, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, which, side note, sorry to interrupt, but he went to church services his whole life. Mm -hmm. Like, religiously. (laughs) Oh, nice. So it's really interesting. He wasn't Jewish or interested in the Jewish faith. No interest in the Jewish culture whatsoever. And he was kind of quoted as saying, look, these are just going to sell because Jewish people are rich. Yeah. And that uh, really got him some criticism. But also it was true. It was true. They all sold. But it set this tone that the Warhol of the 80s was just a businessman. He was just strictly like a business artist. Which, Which is, you know, it's in line with the 80s, though. It is. It's, yeah, it's money. all about making money. But yeah. So, yeah, that really kind of set the tone, though. That, that show, the Jewish Geniuses show, really set the tone. And then he also, he still had this, like, long and interesting uh, relationship with film. Mm-hmm. And he was very interested in, um, like, TV. Yeah. And he started like being on tv more and more in the 80s more than he was had he on been the love boat he was we'll get to okay. that too he was <laughs> i think his first real thing was uh an episode of snl and he did a series of spots of saturday night live oh and one of the notable quotes from that uh which kind of gets to i i think it like gives us a taste to what happens to his uh, fortune and his estate after he dies. But in one skit, he says, he's like putting on white makeup and he says, death means a lot of money, honey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, the 80s also, the big shift for him, there's two major things that happen that rise to, to my mind anyway, is he started painting again. And this is a big deal. In What Warhol's year did life. he do that? Uh, well, it would have been early 80s because okay. by 84, he's already having this this group show that we'll talk okay. about. But in the 60s is when he kind of vowed off painting. Yeah, he's he gone got, to printmaking. Yeah, way into printmaking and just mass producing and stuff like that. And so for collectors, this was a really big deal because he was still doing um, screen printing and stenciling and stuff. But he, for the first time since the 60s, was going back in mm-hmm. with a brush and hand painting over the top really kind of crudely. But it was a big deal because it was kind of a return to form. Mm-hmm. And that's what really started to elevate his art back up in the art mar- art market was like it was the old Warhol was kind of coming back in. Well, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, he'd taken a lot of flack for having sort of a production situation where he had assistants doing a lot of his work. And people were uncomfortable with this as though the artist's hand is supposed to touch any and everything. Right. And he was doing something outlandish, but really, like, all the way back. Oh, yeah. Through all of art history. Yes. Successful artists have assistants, and they might go in and, like, paint in a cloud. Peter Paul Rubens is one of the most famous yeah. for that. He had huge, a, a huge situation going. He had so. specialists, like, hey, tree guy, come paint the tree on this yeah. painting now. You know how I like it. And then he signs it and he gets paid. Yeah, so anyway, whatever, and continues on. That was in, like, on. the 1600s. So Andy Warhol's, like, still doing that, and everybody's shocked by this <laughs> I know, that ancient practice. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. the fact that he is putting his hand on stuff also increases the value. For sure. So in 1982, Jorgen Leif, he He's a Danish filmmaker. He also brought Andy Warhol back into the conversation in a new way. 
he included him in a thing called 66 Scenes from America. I actually sent this to you a couple of years ago, a little clip of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And his idea was that he, he wanted to get Andy Warhol in this 66 Scenes from America, and he was super intimidated. He was like, Andy will never do this. But then he just walked into the factory, told his plan, to Andy and Andy was like okay I'll do that and he's like okay meet at this place at this time and in the meantime uh Jorgen Leith was absolutely scrambling to try and figure it out because he knew Andy Warhol was particular the idea was that he wanted uh to film Andy Warhol eating a hamburger Oh, I know about this. Yes, because I sent it to you. Okay, yeah. So he wanted to film him eating hamburger. And the reason he he did that is that he liked about America that we, all classes, all types of people eat essentially the same things. So you could oh. be a millionaire and you eat a hamburger, or you can be the like working class Joe who eats a hamburger. It's Taco Bell. Yes. Oh, <laughs> why did they get rid of the potatoes? <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> anyway damn you taco bell that was they didn't give us enough warning yeah it was it like really, one month and they're like sorry i do feel like they killed off a childhood friend i know that was rude uh so he, he panics because he's not sure what kind of burger andy warhol will eat so he oh, has gosh. assistant go and choose like the most pleasing looking bags and stuff of food and Andy Warhol shows up and he's shocked that he actually arrived and he's like which hamburger do you want Andy Warhol and Andy Warhol's like you don't have McDonald's (laughs) and he was like oh perfect he was like oh Oh, I didn't I didn't think you would want McDonald's. And he's like, it's just the most beautiful design, but Burger King will do. And so he oh. eats he eats a Burger King for four minutes and twenty seven seconds, a Burger King hamburger. I don't know if I could hang out in this environment. I think I'd lose my mind. It's totally like being insane, I think. But yeah. if you wanna watch it, you can just go to YouTube and watch Andy Warhol eat a hamburger. There you go, guys. <laughs> So that was what he was doing in 1982. What were you doing? Were you even born? I was. But you know what's crazy is that the early 80s really, in addition to uh, eating hamburgers Mm -hmm. and painting again, the biggest story to come out of the 80s and really uh, Warhol's legacy beyond the 60s is that he was smart enough to start surrounding himself with up and coming artists and finding talent. That's really what brought his level even higher through the stratosphere because then all of a sudden he was like this uh, mentor and godfather it's a power move it was a total power move and it was so smart it's keeping him relevant in a new decade yeah and so he did find a lot of um up-and-coming artists and some that would become household names but Mm -hmm. who would you say are like the top of the top that he surrounded himself with well julian schnabel was one that was big i mean julian was doing his own thing for sure and he was going to be successful whether or not he was affiliated with andy warhol but i think it helped push him forward and then obviously uh jean-michel basquiat and keith herring was a big one too yeah i mean i think they probably all would have been successful with or without andy warhol basquiat would have been i think he would have been you think yeah because he already had an underground following he was famous i don't know if he would have been as famous okay but he was he was doing okay um 
but what he did was, I think it's great in a way, because I mean, as a as an artist myself, I would absolutely love if a successful artist was like, hey, and kind of shine a light in my direction. How great yeah. would that be? So the way in which he chose to involve these younger artists, though, was really fascinating mm-hmm. because he kind of concocted this collaboration where it's not quite, it's kind of like an exquisite corpse, if nobody's familiar with that. Oh, yeah. But uh, that was a surrealist term where you basically, you draw a piece of a, a, a work of art and then you pass it on to another artist and they add to it. And then over time, it becomes a finished piece. Yes. But you don't really know what the other is going to do. And so he would pass it between, he, he created this series of work where he and Basquiat and a third artist who was named Clemente. He was, I don't Francesco know. Clemente. Francesco Clemente. I don't know a lot about him. He's Italian. Uh, the three of them would collaborate with these paintings and kind of add on to it, doing whatever they want. And then there was a show in 1984 of these mm-hmm. works. It was a successful show. It maybe wasn't as successful as they were hoping for. No. But that really did cement uh, Basquiat with the world of Warhol. Mm-hmm. And it elevated Warhol as being like, you know, this really important artist yeah. who already was important, but even more important now. Basquiat's somebody we should probably cover at some point. I do think if um, people are into this stuff, we have a few artists that I think would be really yes. interesting to fa- to cover. So let's move ahead. He actually, Andy Warhol, you know, he wasn't one to sit around and twiddle his thumbs. In 1984, he was invited to uh, create or contribute a work to a project for the Sarajevo Winter Olympics. It was, I think, Yugoslavia then. There were a bunch of artists that were involved 16. in that. 16. Yeah. yeah. 16 in total. It was headed by a guy named Lazo and I don't know. Maybe I'm mispronouncing it. No, no, no. Give it your best shot. Vojic? It's okay. V-O-J-I-C. Uh, each artist contributed a piece to, like, dedicated to a specific sport. His was the speed skater. It was a screen print, you know, mm-hmm. like like he did. And it was just an addition of 150 plus artist proofs and variations and stuff. But eventually it was selected and used as the official poster. Yeah. So no big deal. Yeah. Oh, poor Warhol. <laughs> Just the whole world's going to see my art. No biggie. <laughs> like they already, they hadn't already. So in uh, the summer of 85, as we keep working through the 80s, mm-hmm. he, this is a really, this is why I want to focus on this one. This is really bizarre. Okay. But also very telling of Warhol. He was very open to embracing new technology. That's something that was consistent with him. He was kind of open for whatever, Mm -hmm. as long as he could make art from it. Yeah. And in 1985, we get this really bizarre side story of Warhol, which was he was given an Amiga 1000 by the Commodore International Company, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which was a new and upcoming computer. And... He signed on immediately to become the spokesperson for that company. It was a business move. It was a business move, but it was also really forward thinking because if one thing I know about artists, we are both working artists, is they get a little um, caught up on not wanting to embrace new technology because they fear it. Warhol was the opposite, where he was like, what is this? How can we exploit Mm -hmm. it? As long as it's like a business move, sure. So he signed on right away to become the ambassador for the Amiga 1000. And they launched this huge deal, like at the Lincoln Center in 1985. Mm -hmm. 
It was Warhol on stage with Debbie Harry from Blondie. She was everywhere she with him. Was she everywhere. was his like 80 sidekick. Dude, she was cool. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here tonight to help assist uh, Andy do his first computer portrait using the Amiga computer. First off, Andy is going to take a digital snapshot of Debbie, which is running on this system, and you can see the image up there on that screen. The two of them got on stage in front of a live audience, and he did a demonstration using ProPaint, which is adorable, thinking Aww. back to 1985, like Photoshop, basically, uh-huh. and created a portrait of her on the computer in front of everybody. Beautiful. And I've seen the por- I don't know if you've ever really looked into Warhol's digital art. No. It looks like what you did in sixth grade, like yeah. when you got to finally use a computer and like oh, use a shaky mouse to draw a line. I think I don't, I don't think I had access to a computer until I was like 13. Really? We had one 14? in sixth grade, the computer lab in the library. We were allowed to play Oregon Trail. Oh, I had one computer in a classroom once in elementary school, and I wasn't ever allowed to play it because there were two boys who monopolized Oregon Trail, so I only ever played Oregon Trail once. Oh, man, we played Oregon Trail once a week. We got to go to the library and do it, and then I didn't actually get a computer until college. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, guys. We're old. old. Yeah. Well, anyway, so those are pretty interesting if you ever want to look them up. He did prints of them and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. but I do like that story because it was... Just Warhol willingly embracing technology. And I I thought that was a really um, smart thing. But he was also doing um, more mainstream stuff. Speaking of prints, in uh, 1985, the same year, Vanity Fair actually commissioned him to make a portrait of Prince. Oh, nice. Ah, oh, this is the Orange Prince, isn't yes, it? Yes, the yeah, Orange Prince one, yep. to commemorate the success of Purple Rain. I know, so I he thought did that, that was pretty funny. And then, weirdly, he pivoted again the same year. He's only got two years left to live, guys. And he's <laughs> like, get it all in. Maybe yeah, he knew. Do it. He says, uh, let's go on Love Boat. Oh, that's how he went on Love Boat. He went on uh, Love Boat for an episode called Hidden Treasures and Pictures from the Past. It came out in October of 85. Also in this episode were Andy Griffith and Milton Berle. (laughs) Andy Warhol plays himself. He offers to make a passenger the subject of a portrait. And there's this whole backstory about one of the people on the boat. (laughs) <laughs> who was like a former Warhol superstar and was trying to keep it secret from her husband. Oh, interesting. I tried to find it, but I couldn't find it on YouTube. Ah, oh, we should check that down sometime. Speaking of the Prince portrait. Oh, yeah. You know what's a, a, something we haven't even discussed yet about Warhol, but really picked up in the 80s big time was throughout his entire artistic career, dating back to the early 50s, some of the earliest like professional work he ever got, Mm-hmm. was doing album covers. Oh, yeah. Like like straight out of art school, he was doing album covers for like jazz albums and stuff in the 50s. But in the 60s, he did a ton of album art. And I mean, the most famous being the Velvet Underground's banana cover. Or, oh, yeah. You know, the Rolling Stones, Sticky Fingers, those things. But he kept doing them from, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. But the 80s, he was like really prolific. He did album covers for Liza Minnelli, Billy Squire, Diana Ross, Aretha Franklin, mm-hmm. Debbie Harry, John Lennon. No I mean, biggie. so there was this other whole side story of while he was doing everything we're discussing, he was also regularly creating like 
iconic album art for the 80s. It's just kind of like just lightning speed. And contributing to Interview Magazine. I I mean... Oh, yeah, he started Interview Magazine. We didn't even discuss that. Yes, yes. He he started Interview Magazine and is working on that actively the whole time. And then in uh, 1987, he started a little show on MTV. Yeah. Called Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes. Because of his famous line, everybody gets 15 minutes of fame in the future, whatever. And his, he had, I've actually watched an episode of it. Oh. It's amazing. Is it? It's so weird. It's actually very much like modern times. You know how in the 21st century, all of our information is in little snippets, like Mm -hmm. 5, 10, 15, 20 seconds, but like never in depth you just suck in a little bit at a time yeah and that's exactly what the show is so he'll start out interviewing somebody like debbie harry she was on the first episode she was of course uh grace jones and we'll get into her at some point okay we got to do something so in this episode i watched with grace jones she's talking about a project she worked on with keith herring Mm -hmm. in which she's wearing a gigantic skirt but she starts out flat on the ground or like low and she grows as the skirt grows taller and taller what does that make you think of kylie minogue okay well uh, sorry my brain immediately went to vamp because grace Mm. jones was the the star of vamp and keith herring did all of her makeup yes which we did in a previous episode. Get to it. Like, we couldn't tie this in any better, guys. <laughs> Five-star reviews, y'all. But it's really interesting because Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes includes artists and uh, designers. So there's, like, fashion. There's actors. Musicians, I'm sure. Absolutely. Oh, you did Debbie, Debbie mm-hmm. Harry already. Writers. William S. Burroughs. Really? Oh, okay. So Do you what- think there's, like, a box set of these? It's only five episodes. Oh, really? Well, I crammed a lot in. What's really interesting about this is that he did it in a way that made everybody really uncomfortable. So, like, in the section with William S. Burroughs, he's being interviewed sitting in an egg chair or, like, an egg-like chair. And all these fashion models are walking through, but they're, like, walking through the middle of the interview. (laughs) And like one kind of scrambles behind his chair and then climbs a ladder out of sight. And then later in the same episode, we see the actors from Platoon doing like weird exercises, but also talking about Vietnam. It's so bonkers. (laughs) I really want to watch I want to watch every single episode. It was great. Absolutely great. Well, that's 87. Mm -hmm. That's the year we're going to stop on. But before that even happened in 86, we got to back up just a little bit because that's when he started to create some of his last and major works that would be revealed in 87. And that is two major bodies of work. Okay. One is The Last Supper, which is a big deal. Created this huge piece of The Last Supper. It's very pop art. You guys can look into it. We won't focus too much, but the one I do want to focus on is, interestingly, his series of self-portraits. These, like, monumental self-portraits. And he's got these crazy-ass wigs on. Yes. That's what became iconic, and really, which is shocking... His whole life, he had never really done anything like this with mm-hmm. self-portraits. But yet, the very, like, this actually happened 
uh, nine months before his death is wow. when he decided to do these self-portraits, which would become the image we think of with yeah. Warhol. This is the first sort of major series of self-portraits for quite a long time. What prompted this one? Uh, well, I don't, it's just I ran out of ideas. And uh, he did these huge series of self-portraits wearing all these wigs and crazy stuff. Which leads me to this week's fun fact. What? Okay, you may or may not know, I was late to the game on this one. I just thought Warhol had crazy white hair. No. He was obsessed with wigs, and he took his wig collection very seriously. Yeah. He owned over 40 wigs. That's a that lot of wigs. Were like imported hair from Italy. They were like platinum white and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he just loved it. It reminds me a lot of uh, Catherine O'Hara's character on Shit's Creek. Moira. <laughs> Moira's character. Yeah. Sorry to break 80s, guys, but Shit's Creek's funny. Anyway, so he had all these wigs, but my favorite story involving his wigs has to be in 1985, a girl came up to him. And what? pulled one off. <gasps> no! Imagine how high-class Andy Warhol reacted to a what little girl. What did he girl. do? I have a quote for you. Oh, my gosh. Later in his journal, he wrote about it. Okay. And he said, quote, I don't know what helped me back from pushing her over the balcony. <laughs> oh, guys, don't get in the way of Andy Warhol and his Whoa. wigs. Well, I actually have a little more to add to Andy's wig story. Oh, really? Great. Yes. He would go to a salon and have his wigs cut. And over time, he would wear lo- slightly longer wigs so that it would make it look as though his hair had been growing. Okay. So he was not messing around. (laughs) No, not at all. He was very serious. So step off. All right. Well, we are at 1987. So actually, his death is involved with Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes on MTV. Really? He was in the middle of filming their fifth episode, uh, and he was rushed to the hospital because he had to have an emergency gallbladder surgery. And he later, he survived the surgery, but he later went home and died from complications. Yeah, he sure did. Yeah. And they, the family actually didn't like this. And, yeah. And they were like, well, this was negligence. And they sued and settled out of court. Yeah. But he died on February 22nd, 1987, at the age of 58. Yes. Which was pretty young. And he was, like, running strong at this year. So... Who's to know what he would have gone on to do? Uh, you know, but he went out on top, really. I mean, he had a, a hell of a, of a decade in the 80s. He didn't quite get a full decade, but he crammed it all in there. Mm-hmm. And honestly, looking back at this, you know, as art historians ourselves, Warhol is synonymous with the 60s, but the 80s really, like right. it's some of his most important contributions happened in the 80s actually he, he does close out the decade whether he was here or not yeah in 1989 the warhol diaries was released it's actually a collection of daily phone conversations and, you know he brought a recorder with him 
every single day. Mm-hmm. He referred to it as his wife. It was his diary, yes. And he, he <laughs> it's like would, Diane and Dale Cooper. Yes, exactly. So he has the Warhol diaries. It was actually originally supposed to be recordings just for like taxes and stuff, like keeping keeping track of his expenditures and stuff. But by the end, he's musing on his life and the state of the art world and stuff. So oh, interesting. he does close out 89 with a final contribution. Well, guys, here's a spoiler alert about Andy Warhol. Um, he goes on to uh, become even more famous and his art uh, was not forgotten. Yep. And he is easily one of the most important artists of the 20th century. And his uh, his art is like record high it's insane considering that it was like uh cardboard boxes and stuff like that i mean it's just phenomenal and he really kind of had uh he played the game well this is the way you do it and i think he did it really well and it's pretty fascinating but the 80s warhol man it's just crazy to think of what people can do had they not kind of been cut short this was a freak accident that happened from complications and surgery. Actually, they looked into it later and it wasn't. Oh, you think it was kind of like... They looked into it later and they said that he'd had a family history of gallbladder problems. Also, the uh, situation with the gunshot wound that he had previously suffered. All of these things contributed to his death. It wasn't entirely negligence. Oh, so he was the Titanic and the iceberg was there no matter what. Yeah. Okay, well, that's interesting. His time what do you was think? numbered. After, you know, we don't even, even studying Warhol in school, we didn't spend a lot of time on the 80s. Knowing his mm-hmm. contributions, you know, the for the duration of his life, what, what are your final thoughts on him? I think he was made for the 80s, honestly. I mean, he did yes, cool things true. for the 60s, but if you really think about his message and his branding, it's so on, on 80s, par with yeah. the 80s. Absolutely. I think he was like coming into his zenith and he just went out i mean it was kind of like petering out but uh he it was his decade that was where he was meant to be i love too that you know by 85 he was embracing computer technology Mm -hmm. i would have loved to have seen where he would have taken that and it wasn't until not too long ago um more recently that they got a hold of his original home computer and oh, all yeah. the discs and everything. And they did this Aww. big project. The to discs ex- each weighed 12 pounds. <laughs> right. And they held like half a megabyte. <laughs> but anyway, they extracted all those original files and were able to see the art that he was creating. Oh, those. cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I'm so, sure somebody is making a show of that right now. I'm sure somebody is exploiting it for money. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Well, I hope you appreciated and enjoyed us branching out a little bit from, you know, movies and nonsense and diving into the world of art. If you like it, uh, hopefully you do. We got a ton of artists we'd love to talk about down the road because there were some pretty eccentric people in the 80s. Grace Jones. Grace Jones. Let's explore her. her. Yeah, maybe we'll do a poll. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. Uh, Grace Jones will not win that poll and we'll do it anyway. Yeah. We'll we'll cheat because you guys will never know. We should do polls in the losers who we do. That's a great idea. Thank you. Okay, cool. All right. Well, if you like what you heard, you can rate, review, subscribe. You can follow us on uh, iTunes or anywhere you get your podcast. Please give us five stars and tell your friends. Thanks to everybody. We have um, just been seeing an increase in listeners and everybody seems to be enjoying it. Thanks for sharing. That means so much to us. Um, But we are on Instagram at Lasergraves. 
You can check all our backup episodes, including uh, Vamp with Grace Jones and <laughs> Keith Herring <laughs> at lasergraves.com. And then if you want to follow our personal sites, I'm at death at 33 RPM. I'm at Mariah Rose Wimmer. And that's what we got for you this week. We will see you next week. Uh, bye. Bye.